Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Very interesting opening statement here that he gives. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Very interesting that he declares himself to be Jacob, sons of Jacob, but then declares himself to be Israel, your father. I like the way it's worded, right? Because there's almost an admission there that maybe every one of us would give. <clears throat> we look at our children, and what do we see? Ourselves. Our own sinful selves. The product of ourselves. And what do we want them to listen to? Us? No. We want them to listen to the one who's actually governed by God. So here, sons of Jacob, come and listen to Israel, governed by God, is what he said. Now, this is very interesting. You're going to put a big star in your Bible margin right next to verses 1 and 2 because this is the first declared prophecy through a man in the Bible. There are prophecies previous, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, but they are the Lord declaring a thing and the Lord speaking through and the Lord giving account of what will happen. This is the first time where a man says, I have a message for you about the future, speaking about what is to come. He begins with Reuben in verse 3. You are my firstborn. That should make him the heir. The heir, the eldest, receives a double portion and the blessing of the father. The father will speak profound blessings upon him and leave him. If there are, like in this case, 12 brothers, he will divide all of his property into 13 portions so that all of the brothers get one portion, but the eldest gets a double portion. So Reuben is supposed to receive that. He's the firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. That's a massive gear shift right there. And then we see why. You shall not excel. Because you went in to your father's bed, then you defiled it. Then he seemingly turns to everyone listening and says, he went up to my couch. Now, what he's referring to occurred in Genesis 35, verse 22, where it says, and it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. He literally had sex with his stepmother. He defiled his father's bed. Great disgrace to the family. Great disgrace to his father and himself that he would do this. There was little said, he addressed it, but there in chapter 35 there was little said about it. Now he addresses it very directly. How often sin has robbed men of their full potential. He's saying, you're the firstborn, you're my beginning, my strength, my excellency, but 
you're not going to get a blessed thing because of the sin that is in your life. Very unfortunate. Simeon, verse 5, and Levi, our brothers, starts right out with harsh examination. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi uh, were men of unjust violence, uncontrolled anger, with no regard for the lives of men or animals. They wiped out all the men of Shechem in retaliation for the rape of their sister Dinah, Genesis chapter 34, verses 25 through 29. There is godly anger that the scripture describes. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Right? I recommended that you pick up salt and light on the way out of here. Some of the issues our government is dealing with will make you really angry. Don't sin. Go vote. You know what I'm saying? Call your senator. Take action. Take action. But don't sin in the process. There is ungodly anger described a little later in Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 31 where Paul has to admonish the Ephesus church, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Get rid of what is so obviously selfish in its sin. When it's focused on, I, I have gotten angry on many occasions as a pastor on other people's behalf. <laughs> I see things that men do to their children and to their wives and to their families and in our culture, and it makes me angry. There's a reason for anger, and there's a time to take action and correct situations. I knew a man for many, many years of my life, and his wife called me up, and she described to me the horrific things that were going on in their home, and I said, you made the wrong phone call. You should have called the police. And she was shocked. This man's been your friend. And I say, yeah, and he still will be, even if he goes to prison. But this is not behavior that can be tolerated in your life, your family, or your environment. You have to address it. You know, being angry on someone else's behalf is usually fairly easy to understand. He makes that statement, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Later, both tribes would be scattered. Simeon was largely disintegrated with its land inside the territory and tribe of Judah. You can see that in Joshua chapter 19, verses 1 and 9. Now, I'm going to just bang through a whole bunch of details as we move through this chapter. And if you kind of get bogged down with like, wow, I wasn't expecting a history lesson. There's a much bigger picture. This is the beginning of prophecy right here where a man has developed a relationship with God that gives him such clarity 
that as he's walked through life, he's been able to examine his 12 sons, and now he knows their future. Think about that. There are those people in our lives that have that type of relationship with the Lord, and we would be wise to listen to them. They have a relationship with the Lord that as they look out at life, they have a certain clarity about it. And they can lend to us the wisdom that is a prophetic relationship with God. If God's put that in your life, be wise and listen to it. Levi was given a more noble dispersion among all the tribes because it would become the priestly tribe distributed amongst all the other tribes. So you can see a clear description of that in Joshua chapter 21 verses 1 through 45. Now in 49 verse 8, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. There's sort of a play on words that doesn't work well at all in the English language because the name Judah means praise. Okay, so hey, praise, you're going to be praised sort of thing. Like I said, it doesn't lend well. In the Hebrew, it's quite poetic. Later, you know, this whole thing is going to take place. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, and you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, that staff of authority in the king's hand, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, as far as his children and his descendants, until Shiloh comes. We'll examine that more. And to him, capital H on that pronoun, shall be the obedience of the people, binding his, lowercase h, on the his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. He, capital H, washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So in the beginning, Judah, you are he of whom your brothers praise. He's not perfect, okay? When we examine the brothers previously and we see the sword of condemnation, judgment, correction being spoken, we shouldn't think that Judah is perfect. You know, Having studied and read through this, he was the one that suggested they sell Joseph into slavery in order to get rid of him. So that's got no nobility in it. Uh, he dealt sinfully with his daughter-in-law, and he then ended up having sex with her when she had disguised herself as a prostitute. So pretty terrible things. Judah is an example for us regarding God's grace to the undeserving. He didn't earn this. I mean, he did some noble things, but so didn't the others. You know, the sinfulness which he listed here, this, this great blessing that has come upon him, he in no wise deserves it. So as Jacob prophesies over Judah, and these things have a great fulfillment in Jesus Christ also. The statement, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, a lion, the scepter shall not depart. 
from Judah nor a lawgiver from between your feet. Uh, to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah, Judah certainly will be a leader in his family as time goes by and in this nation. But this ultimately is speaking of Jesus as the king and Messiah, God's ultimate leader, is what Jacob is talking about. That's, that's, that's why it's so prophetic in what's being said. No understanding of that, you know, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Oh, there is that one who is going to descend from Judah who will overcome all things, Jesus Christ, in the end. That statement, until Shiloh comes. It was around 1,600 years later. So this statement is made, and 1,600 years pass when Jesus fulfilled this prophecy regarding Shiloh. The name means he who uh, who is... Uh, you know, has the right or is the one to whom all things belong. I mean, you can't say that about anyone other than Jesus Christ. So the, the name Shiloh is the idea of uh, this is the one singular in all of history or this is the one to whom all things belong. So until Shiloh comes, you know, there's going to be someone from Judah upon the throne. The last element of self-governance for the nation of Israel. Capital punishment was taken away from Israel by Rome in AD 7. Okay? Uh, Jesus was clearly on the scene as a young man. Uh, the best calculations put him at 12 years old. So for the Bible students in the room, Jesus at 12 years old was in the temple debating with the religious leaders, right? Literally teaching them. They were astonished by this young man's behavior. He hasn't even, you know, come of age to be 13 years old yet, and he's correcting them on their interpretation of the law for three solid days. You know, maybe three days and three nights. Who knows how that went. The authority, the scepter to rule themselves and govern themselves, when Rome took that away, the rabbis marched in their streets, having shaved their heads and their beards, having put ash on their heads, mourning and weeping, saying, God has failed. Because they understood this statement about Shiloh to mean the Messiah was going to come. And there would be the authority of Judah on the throne until... The Messiah arrived, and in their mind, the Messiah has not arrived. Therefore, the scriptures have failed. The scriptures are false. God has failed. That's how potent it was. If they'd only looked a little further, right? It would have been smart to say, hey, our authority was just taken away. That must mean Shiloh has arrived. And there were a few, even in the temple, that were looking for him, right? who when he arrived, they prophesied over them, carried in in Mary's arms. They made great declarations about his future. They missed it completely. They were blind to it. Now this finishing statement, binding his donkey to the vine, literally 
binding his donkey to the choice vine meant Judah's land would be filled with choice vineyards. And it was. His region became known as the vine dresser's land. So fulfillments, again, that were large and relatively small on the scale. 49.13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, more literally, between the seas. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. So Zebulun, here Jacob addresses the tenth born and the ninth born sons of Leah. He stays in the, the family line of Leah at this point. Um, uh, Zebulun would be very faithful to King David during his reign, giving the largest number of soldiers to David's army uh, from any single tribe. You can see in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 33 of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, ex experts in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. They would stay in order when they went into warfare, whereas other soldiers, once the melee began, would break from their ranks. And then it's very difficult to control the battlefield because as you're you know, signaling the flags and calling out with your bugle as to what direction and what movements they should take, uh, the whole system is falling apart. These guys end up being an integral part of making all of Israel hold its ranks. They refuse to move, so anybody to their right or left that tries to break is either having to run into them or peel away from them. So they were the ones who kept order in these situations. You know, being a haven for ships between the seas, as it says, the tribe of Zebulun ended up settling between the Mediterranean Sea and the Galilee. So Zebulun could look both east and west and see the sea. Remarkable that before any of this is even... So they're in Egypt currently, as Jacob is giving these prophecies about what's going to transpire in the lives, families, and the outlook of his sons. Remarkable thing. He then says in verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey. Doesn't sound really you know, flattering, but lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So some interesting outcome here. Issachar being the strong donkey, according to this sense, uh, they uh, were counted in uh, Numbers chapter 26. Uh, Issachar was the third largest tribe. So uh, they certainly have become strong in number and in size. Uh, because of their size and strength, they were often targeted by invading armies to be slaves. You know, if, if you conquer this group of people, you've got a massive workforce under your authority. That thing of becoming slaves, while they were large and had a big section of land, they took their land with almost no conflict. It was easy. And as such, they historically became lazy. And so it was that while they were big in numbers, while they were hard workers and strong, they didn't like conflict, they didn't like difficulty, and they were easily taken over. Something to learn from that. 49.16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent 
by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. What number of things here to look at. Uh, that statement, Dan shall be a judge of his people. Uh, Samson, one of the most important judges, did come from this tribe. So they produced one of the most prominent judges in Israel's history. Uh, you can see in Judges chapter 13, verse 2, there was a certain man of Zoar of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Mother and father of Samson listed right there. That statement, Dan shall be a serpent by the way. Uh, this uh, tribe, uh, some believe, is going to actually you know, bring further problems because their history is bringing idolatry to Israel. That's one of the things they're most known for. Judges chapter 18 verse 30 records, Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Uh, secondly, 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 26, and Jeroboam said in his heart, this is during the civil war as the nation splits and the ten tribes move north and the two tribes remain in the south. So you now, at that point, you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Jeroboam in the north said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If they go down to Jerusalem, if these people go up, you know, this, this statement is a little confusing, because anywhere you are in Israel, elevation-wise, or on the compass, if you are north of Jerusalem, it doesn't matter where you are. If you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. That's what they say. Let us go up to Jerusalem. So the statement, if these people go up, to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the hearts of this people will be turned back to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, and the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. They introduce and encourage idolatry in the land of Israel throughout its entire history. Amos chapter 8, verse 14, those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, so notice the small g there, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The, the following after idolatry becomes a history for them as a tribe. Further, this statement, serpent by the way, some say this could mean the Antichrist will come through the tribe of Dan, based on Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 16, where it says the snorting of his horses were, was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. They have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. So the idea of the consumption of Jerusalem and the city uh, being led possibly you know, by someone who rides on the horses from Dan. There are those that even look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 14, in regard to the possibilities of the Antichrist emerging from Dan. Now, 
in those times. Many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Violent people of yours. The, the implication perhaps being of Dan. So that's some speculation there. With that, I just want to draw this all the way out because of what Judah has said. Uh, the tribe, or excuse me, of what Jacob has said. The tribe of Dan is not included in the tribes listed in the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. And that's a huge speculation for a lot of people. They're, they're reading the 12,000 from each tribe and the cumulative number of 144,000, and Dan is conspicuously absent. But why, why is Dan not numbered with them? Well, there are some wild speculations as to why, and uh, we don't know. It may tie into this. We'll look at some interesting things. Dan is included, however, in Ezekiel 48's list of tribes in the millennial reign. So they, they do make it through. God's grace. Again, now back to Jacob in his current struggle. He, in this section, makes that statement, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. The Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. In the midst of this, whether he meant it or not, he literally calls upon the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is Yeshua. As this man is prophesying over his sons and in the process of dying and passing away himself, he calls out the name of Jesus. I just love that. There you are in the Old Testament and in the midst of this man's death and struggle. And even this is going to be a difficult ministry right here to lay these things on your sons. You know what I'm saying? And in the midst of it, he's calling for the help and guidance of Jesus. 49.19, he says, Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon you, but he shall triumph at last. So, Gad also supplied a lot of troops for the armies of Israel. You can see in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. These were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over a hundred. The greatest was over a thousand. So they were militant in their form and understanding and very educated in the process of war because they're put in place as leaders. You know, these are sort of the, the West Point graduates who are coming to the battlefield with that understanding. Now, a troop shall tramp upon you because of their position and influence, power, and military prowess. Uh, they were many times attacked and destroyed and dismayed. So you know, their father's just telling them, yes, you're going to be mighty in war and you know, mighty in strength, and you'll be a troop, but you're also going to get trampled as a result frequently. And that's the nature of what did Jesus say? You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And you become known as that. Jeremiah 49, verse 1, against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities? The idea that they were defeated and no one was there to help them or defend them. Then lastly, regarding Gad, it says he shall triumph at last. If you experience... Uh, being defeated over and over, uh, remember that as a child of God, in the end, we win. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Gad is mighty and militant and used by God and 
throttled and trounced and defeated and in the end, triumphed. Because he's our king and he's ultimately the one who wins. Bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. A little too feminine for me, but there's some explanation. Later, Moses repeats a blessing upon the tribe of Asher, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 24. It says, and of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. So the idea that Asher as a tribe and his region, their eventual land settlement would not just be you know, necessities. They would also have great luxuries there. You know, being able to dip your feet in oil is that image of abundance and, and uh, wealth. 49.21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. It's interesting, again, that the King James scholars noticed the capitalized pronoun there. He uses beautiful words, indicating some prophetic message about probably the coming Messiah. Uh, Naphtali's land was very important location near the Sea of Galilee, the region where Jesus did most of his teaching ministry. Jesus taught in this location. How interesting it is that, you know, here's Jacob prophesying about Naphtali and his final location and saying, oh, you know, the words that are going to be spoken uh, in your land are going to be beautiful. Jesus was there. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, I'll read it to you. When Jesus heard that John had put been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun, and there it is, Nephtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death. Light has dawned. Uh, we were in Caesarea, right next to the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there uh, they have a house that's been excavated that uh, was known as the House of Peter. So um, it is in all likelihood where Jesus lived. Uh, they've excavated it and found, interestingly enough, the inside of the house, the walls were decorated uh, with uh, Christian graffiti. So um, in a Jewish culture, that's very abnormal that you would find, you know, uh, the uh, the sign of the fish, the ichthus and the cross and the menorah all together as one emblem. Simon Peter's name on the wall, you know, all kinds of Christian emblems there recorded recently. Uh, they discovered Roman taxation records for that entire district. And um, it was, a, a house was taxed according to the number of occupants, not according to the square footage. That'd be good for some of us, you know what I'm saying? So uh, the, the house uh, where that is located was uh, originally taxed for Peter, it is recorded that way, his wife and his wife's mother. We know that to be the living arrangements. And then later the taxation changed because there was a rabbi who came and lived with them. So 
It may literally have been the house of Peter and Jesus there. So some cool stuff to examine along the way. You know, he uses beautiful words, as we said. How fitting, uh, given this was the location where uh, the teaching of Jesus took place. 49.22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. His bow remained in strength, and his arms, his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your Father who will help you, and by the might, the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb, blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. So this fruitful bough, this describes Joseph and his life's ministry, right? The grain and the feeding of the world. Certainly it describes that. And the abundance of his descendants who would be you know, coming after him. He, as a family, would have many descendants. A fruitful bough by a well. You know, he was well taken care of in a very deep relationship with God. The thing that he drew upon through all of those false accusations, and all of the imprisonment and the suffering and the betrayal was the Lord. You know, continuously we see him drawing deep from God and being able to relay that to the people around him. You know, the archers have bitterly grieved him. Life was definitely cruel to Joseph. He was hated, hurt, neglected. You know, through that process. And then following the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. You know, God was there for Joseph even when Joseph could not see him. God was supporting him and carrying him through the process. We'll finish with just a little bit more here. The blessing of your father have excelled the blessing of my ancestors. Jacob was a scoundrel most of his life. Now he recognized the great blessing of God's grace upon him and his family. He's looking at things from an earthly sense up until he comes to those last moments. And now he's relaying this. Luke 7 verse 47 says, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, but she loved much. But to him who little is forgiven, the same loves little. Right? We say that. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Jacob has been forgiven so much. He's been taught so much. He's been through so much with his sons, with his family, with his circumstances. And he's become a man who loves God very deeply. Right? You know, he makes that statement, mighty God of Jacob. That wasn't how he thought of God previously. He, He comes to these conclusions. You can see them again in this Short section, mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, the almighty. You consider it, you guys. In the early days of Jacob's life, Genesis 31, verse 53, he said, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. He had no fear of God himself. 
and no relationship with God. He's referring to God as the God of my fathers. And now he's saying, this is my God, and that's where your blessing comes from. My understanding of the Lord. I think, you know, hopefully we can all identify with those changes that take place over time. 49.27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoils. And Benjamin is, as a tribe, had a reputation of being especially fierce. Anything he was involved in, especially anything that he was involved in, you know, as far as military action goes, they were a little over the top. You know, some reminders, you know, you're, most of us guys remember Ehud, you know, got that hidden dagger and, you know, assassinating the king inside the room. Judges chapter 3, verses 15 through 23. Saul, great warrior, you know, in his lifetime. 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1, 14. Verses 47 through 52, Paul descended from Benjamin. You know, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, fierce, attacking you know, the Christians and persecuting them and putting them in jail. So you can see the cruelty of the tribe in general in Judges chapter 19 and 20, if you're interested in seeing how this prophecy is very true. 49, 28, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. It's interesting that you know this is referred to as blessing, and it comes after all that he said. It'll it'll be nice to know specifically sort of what he added to after this. Currently, we don't. He made these statement, statements, and then he blessed them. So you know, you. you as parents might know what it's like to have to say hard things to your children, but then also to encourage them, to pour the blessing out upon them, each one according to his own blessing. It's interesting that though they were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, each one of these young men and their families come out. No one's lost. Think about the odds, right? Some of you have big families and you have to, sort of say brokenheartedly, well, you know, my mother had nine children, my mother, but, you know, two of them have already passed away. That isn't said here. I had a teacher, uh, Irish, true Irish, Mr. Fitzpatrick, uh, Irish Catholic. He had uh, four, he was one of 15. He had 14 brothers and sisters. Three of them had died in his lifetime. Now that's That's very common when you have a family that big. The odds are against you. All of these come out of Egypt and the captivity as individuals and or as families. They survive through the process. A remarkable thing that the Lord does. 49-29, uh, then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, Hittite. The cave that is in the field of of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession or a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased for the son, from the sons of Heth. And he makes that statement, I am to be gathered to my people. Jacob knew that his family was alive and with the Lord 
and that he would be with them soon. He doesn't have that mindset of this is the finality, this is over, my soul's going to go to sleep. I'm leaving here and I'm going there. Right? <laughs> I've adopted that mindset. Chuck Smith said for years before he passed away, when I pass away, I do not want it to say in the paper that I have died. I want it to say Chuck Smith has moved. And I think they did that. He's not here anymore. He lives elsewhere. You want to be with him? You got to go there. You know, start packing your stuff. Get ready to go. Bury me with my fathers. You know, Jacob knew God's promises would be fulfilled in his family. Their future, he asked to be buried in the land of promise. My God, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what had been promised to them in a cave in the field of Machpelah. This is, you know, Joseph's position of power. His father, right here, he is second in Egypt. His father could have received royal burial. He could have been really, literally received his own pyramid. Joseph has saved Egypt, through the famine. No one has greater honor than Joseph. Joseph could have literally said, start building my father's pyramid right now. Build his sepulcher. Ready yourself to embalm him. And, and this man is saying, I'm not to be buried here. You, you gather up, you know, the rubbish of my remains, and you make sure they go back to the land of promise and get put in the cave that they belong in. I, I think that that is spiritually very significant to us. We need to identify with the faithful who have passed on before us, not those who have died in sin in the world. Let your heart cling to the Lord's promises. Lastly, 49.33, when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This Last of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything's going to shift to the sons and the development of their tribes at this point. So very significant doctrinal issues built and settled all through their lives. You know, I would encourage you to take the time and review what we've studied of this family so far. He's finished commanding his sons. You know, rest in the assurance that when our work is done, the Lord will take us home. People often do that. Oh, I wish I could have just done more. I plan. I just I thought I'd be so much further ahead. Look, you're finished. You're finished. Wherever that finish line is, let God determine that. Right? Oh, they died so young. Oh, they died too early. No, they didn't. They died right on time. It's disappointing for us. Tremendously disappointing for us in certain cases. Scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Look, love my family, love everything I've experienced here in this life on this earth. But honestly, if I could miss a lot of the heartache I've been through and just been in the presence of the Lord the whole time, I'd say, I don't know, how do you weigh that out? What did Paul say, right? For me, to die is gain, right? To live is Christ. So I'll submit to him and let him do his work through me until the final hour. And then stand the presence of the Lord. There's no death for the believer, simply entering into our rest in the presence of the Lord. That's that's what we're looking forward to. I pray that's what your heart's looking forward to, right? You know, I, I sometimes recognize, forgive me for this, but being in the position of a pastor, 
I watch certain people sort of struggle with their walk and their relationship with the Lord, and then I watch someone they love pass on. And they know that person's in the presence of the Lord, and it aligns their focus. A bunch of the concerns about this world just sort of fall off because they're going to go be with their loved one. The fixation, the focus, don't take it as a hardship. A brief separation, right? 1,836,922 years from now. Are you really going to remember the 20 years of separation from when they passed away and you entered their presence? Probably not. Right? When you're young, you're five, you're waiting for the next Christmas to arrive. That one year is an eternity. When you've lived a massive portion of eternity, how difficult is it going to be to remember that sliver of time way back there, right? Every tear will be wiped away. The former things will not be remembered. Praise God. We'll be in the presence of the Lord with those who have passed on before us. Let your heart rejoice in that. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you for your patience. Father, I thank you for your great love and your work in our lives, and I pray that you would minister to us. Help us, Lord, to follow your leading for our lives. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts about being active, the, the salt and light ministry, Lord, that we spoke about this morning, that we would shed the things that would slow us down, the you know, assassination generation, if there be any of us that need to experience those freedoms. Speak to our hearts. Guide us as your children, Lord. We want to run this race all the more efficiently with every passing day. To reach that finish line, to enter into your presence, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Guide us, use us, minister to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.